Let's get rolling then. I will open us in a brief word of prayer and then we'll begin this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and to study your word together. And Lord, I pray that as we do this now in the coming weeks, that that we would continue to learn to love you more. And you would send your spirit among us and that you would change us through the power of your word. So Lord, we pray now that you would join us and that you'd work in our hearts and in our minds. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, folks, we are now continuing our series that we started last week, and we are looking at the book of Hebrews for the next uh, um, several dozen weeks or something like that. So we'll see how long we go with it. But we're looking at Hebrews, and I heard from Joey recently that Mariah was very much thrilled that we're going through Hebrews because she hasn't studied this book in a long time. So actually, I'm completely kidding. They just studied this actually not too long ago, so... But it's good because Hebrews is the word of God. We all need it. So we're going to keep looking at it. All right. But we're looking at Hebrews. And last week we began uh, with an introductory session. Right. And we were looking at some of the basic uh, sort of features of Hebrews. We saw that there was uh, no author specified. Right. So we don't know precisely who wrote this book. Uh, we We can make some guesses. Some guesses are better than other guesses. But ultimately, we really don't know for sure who wrote this book. Um, which is completely fine because we don't have to know that. We just need to know that it's inspired of God. So uh, we learned that. And we also learned just sort of at the end last week, the big picture outline structure of the book of Hebrews. Now, let's just test your memories. Does anybody know how many main points are in the book of Hebrews? Seven. That, I'm impressed, Dixie. Great job. That's awesome. Yes, there are seven main points. Oh, you've got your notes. That's how. <laughs> See, here I thought you just had a really good memory. All right. No, that's good. All right. So seven main points, right? So in Hebrews, we've got seven main points and six warnings. And you know how you can remember that? There are seven main points and six warnings. is because seven is the number of completion. So the message of Hebrews is complete with seven points. And there are six warnings, which is just shy of the number of completion, which means that we always need warnings. Our warnings are never complete. So now you'll remember that forever and you won't have to rely on your notes. (laughs) So seven main points, six warnings. All right. Point number one. This is the point that we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're going to do that by looking at Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Oh, that was a pop. I promise I'm not touching the mic when it does that. It just randomly does that for some reason. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. This is our text for today. And our main point that comes out of these verses is that Christ is superior to the prophets. And you remember that throughout the book of Hebrews, the main message of our author is that he wants to show why his recipients, why his readers should hold fast to Christ... And not to anything else. And you remember that particularly the kind of people that our author has in view are Jewish people who have come to Christ and who are now presently potentially on the verge of turning back to the old ways of Judaism. And what our author wants to do is he wants to say, look, why would you exchange the reality for, a sub- for the shadow? In other words, 
Why would you want to go back to the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the sacrifices and the priesthood and all that business when all of that was all just pointing forward to Christ in the first place? Why would you want any of that less perfect stuff when you can have the perfect, which is Christ? Okay, That's sort of the author's main point throughout this book. And so what he does in these seven major points throughout Hebrews is he's going to show his readers why they should choose Christ. Why is Christ superior to everything in the Old Covenant? And the first sort of institution or the first thing that our author talks about with respect to Christ being superior is the prophets. And that's verses 1 through 3. Now just so you know, in these seven points, they're not always this short. Uh, this one just happens to be three verses. But next week, when we see that Christ is superior to the angels, that actually takes up almost two chapters. So the amount of text we're looking at each week is going to change uh, based on what the author's talking about. But here we're going to look at three verses. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let me read these for us before we take a look at them. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now you may remember from last week, we were talking about the fact that Hebrews was perhaps a, originally a kind of speech or a kind of sermon that was orally delivered to the early church. And uh, we say that primarily because, well, uh, for a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is this book doesn't open like a letter. Right? The author does not identify himself and say, you know, to the church in Galatia, to the church in Ephesus or something. He just opens with this dramatic introduction. And you can feel sort of the drama and the depth and the weightiness of just these first few words, can't you? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers. Right? This is really uh, sort of attention-grabbing language. And that's exactly what our author's purpose is here. What he wants to do is he wants to grab the reader's attention. And from the very beginning of this letter, he wants to show who Jesus is. And the way that he does that first is he compares Jesus to the prophets of old. That's what's happening in these first three verses. He's comparing Jesus to the prophets and showing how Jesus is superior. And the way that our author does that is he provides a kind of set of contrasts. And there are four of the contrasts here. And I want to walk walk us through each of these contrasts because they're really important. They are loaded with, the, with theology. But if we read them too quickly, we miss it. So let's just stop and look at these contrasts, right? First thing our author wants to contrast is between long ago and these last days. 
Right? He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers. But in these last days, God speaks to us through his son. Right? So you can see the contrast there. Long ago and these last days. Now, the long ago part that he's talking about is, of course, the Old Covenant. Right? He's talking about the Old Testament. That, and we can see this when we read the Old Testament, can't we? That when God wants to bring his word to his people, guess what he normally does? He uses a prophet. Elisha, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the 12 minor prophets. Now you go down the list. We've got prophets, people who bring the message of God to his people. Now God spoke to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament, we're told. But in these last days... God is speaking through Jesus. Now notice, not that God didn't speak through Jesus in the Old Testament, but he's emphasizing and highlighting here something different. And here, when he wants to speak about the time period of the coming of Christ, it's interesting that what our author does is he uses this term, these last days. Now, in popular Christianity today, a lot of times when we think about the last days, we're normally thinking about a specific small period of time that comes at the very end of history right before Jesus comes back. That's often what, how the last days are sort of presented uh, these days. But that's not quite right. That's not how the biblical authors view the last days. In fact, notice that our author here doesn't just talk about the last days. He says in these last days. In other words, our author is living in the period of the last days. Now, what are these last days? Well, the last days are not talking about a specific, small, perhaps a seven-year period of time at the very end of history. That's not what the last days mean in Scripture. Rather, the term last days has in view everything from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So that the last days are described in that way, the days between Jesus' first coming and second coming, because those who live in that period are living at a time when there is only one major event in redemptive history that is left to happen. Jesus comes, he dies for our sins, right? He does all of his earthly ministry. He goes back into heaven. What does he say? The next major thing that's going to happen is his second coming and the consummation of our salvation, glorification, all that business. That's all coming in Christ's second coming. And we are waiting for that. And so what the biblical authors do, both in the Old and the New Testament, is they refer to this period between Christ's first coming and his second coming as the last days, because there's only one thing left to happen. So the last days are not talking about a little quantity of days at the end, but they're talking about a certain kind of days, the days that are between Christ's first and second coming. And that's significant here, because what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying, in these last days, God is speaking to us very specially, through his son, because Christ is the revelation of the Father. When Jesus came, what did he say? If you've seen me, who have you seen? You've seen the Father. Jesus is the revelation. 
of the Father. And we could go into that in a whole lot greater detail. But you see the contrast there that our author's doing. Long ago and in these last days. Now, there's a second contrast that he's bringing up here, and this is also important. He says that long ago, many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. In these last days, he has spoken to who? To us. So there's another contrast. In the last days, he spoke to the fathers. In these days, he speaks to us. Now, this is important because what is our author doing? He's saying that the very same God who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Israelites, and everyone in the Old Testament, that same God is speaking to us now through this man, Jesus Christ. The same God is speaking in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so lest we make the mistake that the God of the Old Testament is a different God or has somehow altered himself since the New Testament. No, this is the same God who is speaking. And this also implies, by the way, not only that it's the same God who's speaking, But that we have here in the Old Testament and the New Testament the same message that is spoken by that God. In other words, when God spoke to the fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, the Israelites, it is not just that the same God was speaking, but it is that he was speaking the same message. When God made the covenant with Abraham... God was promising Christ. When God made the covenant with David, God was promising Christ. The same God who spoke in the Old Testament is the same God who speaks in the New Testament and the message is the same. The message is pointing to the coming of Christ. And so that's the second contrast. But notice here that as we highlight these contrasts, they're not pure contrasts, but they actually are highlighting parallels at the same time. There's overlap going on. Okay, that's the second contrast. Now here's the third one, and this one is really key. This is also especially key with respect to the author of Hebrews and and not really needing to know who it is. Why do we say that? Well, here is what our author says. He says, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So notice that phrase, by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. All right, now there's another contrast, by the prophets and by his Son. As we talked about before, right, by the prophets, we know that in the Old Testament, God spoke his word through prophets. That was his normal way of operating. He gave his word to the prophets. Many of the prophets wrote it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that is much of our Old Testament. But notice that in the New Testament, he says that God is speaking through his Son. Now, that doesn't mean that we throw the Old Testament out or anything. But think about this for a second. Did the author of Hebrews hear his teaching 
that is, hear all of the teaching that he's giving in, in this book. Did the author of Hebrews hear this message from the lips of Jesus himself? No one wants to take a step. Did he hear it from Jesus himself? Was the author of Hebrews himself a witness to what Jesus said and did? All right, I'm going to tell you straight up. In chapter, chapter 2, verse 3, he says he was not. The author of Hebrews says that everything he heard was from eyewitnesses who testified to these things through signs and miracles and supernatural wonders. So you know what he's talking about there is he's talking about the apostles. The author of Hebrews heard these teachings from the apostles, not from Jesus himself. That is that the author of Hebrews was not there when Jesus made his teachings and when Jesus performed his miracles and all these things. He was hearing them from the apostles. Now, that is really important when we come to this text because what does the author of Hebrews say? He says that the message that God is preaching to him and to his recipients is being spoken by Jesus. But how is that the case? Because he himself never actually heard Jesus speak, nor was he there to see Jesus do miracles. How is it that he can say that Jesus is speaking to him? It's because Jesus speaks through his apostles. You see that logical connection there? Jesus speaks through his apostles so that when the author of Hebrews hears these apostles speak, He's not just hearing the words of the apostles. He is hearing the very words of Christ. Now that, that's a subtle detail we might just pass over and miss if we're not thinking about what he's saying. But that's really important to, to realize that when the apostles speak, we can trust them. Because they have been sent by Christ to speak the words of Christ. Now, we might sort of take that for granted, but you know what? In, in church history, there have been serious objections to this. And in fact, I've seen objections to this, especially around Christmas time and around Easter time, which we are fast approaching, where you will see this kind of thing in newspapers and Facebook articles and news stories and so on, where someone will release a book or someone will release an article of some kind claiming that we can't trust the apostles. Because they misrepresent Jesus. Now, I don't normally talk about, you know, critical scholarship and about you know, gospel criticism and biblical criticism and those sorts of things in Sunday school and in sermons. Because, quite frankly, a lot of it's just sort of like up there and sort of boring for most people. I'm a nerd, so I really like that kind of stuff. But I usually keep it out of, of Sunday school stuff. But here, this is really important, I think. These ideas that you might see showing up in newspapers in the next few weeks, as well as especially around Christmas time, for some reason they, people just love to mess up Christian celebration of, of Christmas and things by publishing articles saying Jesus did, never actually rose from the dead and those sorts of things. But what these articles are going to say is they are going to advance the ideas of a particular scholar named Herman Raymaris, who was alive during the 18th century. Now, this was right around the time of the American Revolution when these ideas were getting popular. And they were popularized and coined 
by Ramirez when he published a book called Concerning the Aims of Jesus and His Disciples. That was published right after his death. Uh, well, not right after, a few years after in 1778. So just a couple years after the Revolutionary War here in America. And in this book, Concerning the Aims of Jesus and His Disciples, what Ramirez did was he said, look, there is a radical difference between Jesus and his disciples, between Christ and the apostles. Ramirez said for Jesus, what he wanted to do was he wanted to throw the political yoke of Rome off of Israel. In other words, Jesus was a political revolutionary. He did not want to start a new religion. He was not even that concerned with spiritual things. Rather, Jesus wanted to get rid of Rome. But then Jesus failed, and he died and was executed by Rome. And so his disciples, the apostles, after his death, they stole the body from the tomb, and they made up a bunch of teachings of Jesus, and they left out all of his political teachings, and they created a new religion to accumulate power for themselves. That was the view of Ramaris, and guess what? That view was popularized and repeated and repeated, and many people hold that today in the academies. That there is a radical distinction between Jesus and the apostles. Jesus was just a normal guy who was a good teacher trying to do some good political work. And the disciples messed it all up and turned him into a religious figure. And in fact even turned him into a god. And so what you can see there is that for many people they want to try to divide Jesus and the apostles. But what I want you to see here is that our author in Hebrews, does not want to do that. In fact, he goes so far here as to say that not only do the apostles accurately represent the teachings of Jesus, but even further than that, when the apostles speak, Jesus speaks. That is a bold claim and one that we need to hold fast to. When the apostles speak, Jesus speaks. Now, that's the third contrast that our author gives here. We'll put all these things together in just a second. The fourth contrast that he gives is he says, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And so the contrast that is implied here is that first, in the Old Covenant, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken through Jesus once and for all. Now, he doesn't specifically say the once and for all part, but that's implied with the parallelism here. So, in the Old Covenant, we look back, we can see God spoke through the prophets in a lot of different ways, didn't he? And certainly at a lot of different times. The Old Testament was written over a period of about a thousand years. That's a long time. That's a really long time. And not only was it written over a very long period of time, but God spoke to the forefathers through the prophets in a lot of different ways. He spoke to them through visions, through dreams, through prophetic orations, 
visits from angels. He spoke to them through his written word. He spoke to them through his preached word. Right? So he spoke, he spoke to the people of Israel in a lot of different ways. But here, when we get to the new covenant, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus speaks to us once and for all. Martin Luther, I'm sure you guys all know who that is. Martin Luther, one of my favorite theologians and just a fun guy to read because he just loves to insult people. He's just a really, really entertaining and colorful author. And one of the things that Luther was asked one time, someone came up to him and they said, you know, Dr. Luther, how can I hear Christ speak to me? How can I hear Christ speak to me? And, and isn't that a great question? Like, like, I have that question sometimes. Maybe you have that question where you just feel sort of spiritually dry. And we want to know, how can I get Christ to speak to me? Well, Luther didn't answer this student or this congregant by saying, well, you know, what you need to do is you need to find a closet and you need to go sit in the closet with your legs crossed on the ground and hold your palms up to heaven and just hope that the Spirit speaks to you. Luther didn't say that what you need to do is you need to go outside and hold your hands up to heaven and ask God to reveal himself to you. Now, he didn't say any of those things. You know what Luther said? He said, if you want to hear Christ speak to you, open your Bible. If you want to hear Christ speak to you, open your Bible. You see, in these last days, Christ is the superior prophet because he doesn't speak to us in many times and in many ways. But he has spoken to us once and for all definitively through the apostles. And the apostles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the scriptures. And it is the scriptures through which Jesus speaks to us. Now, how is this the case? How is Jesus the superior prophet to the Old Testament prophets? Well, aside from all these contrasts here, in verses 2 and 3, our author continues to heap and heap and heap great statements about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. Why is Jesus superior to the prophets? He created the world. He is the heir of all things. He is the radiance and exact imprint of God's nature. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. Look at all of these things that our author is piling on Jesus. You see, Jesus is not a mere man who comes and declares the power of God, who comes and declares that God is provident over everything, who comes and proclaims that God is at work. That's what the prophets did. The prophets had the power of declaration. They came and they told the people who God was and what he does. Well, Jesus, as the perfect revelation of the Father, certainly declares to us who God is and what he does. 
But you see, our author goes one step further. And he says, not only does Jesus declare who the Father is, not only as Jesus speaks to us in these last days, does he not just tell us who God is, but Jesus himself is God. Jesus himself is the one through whom everything was made. Jesus himself is the one who upholds the universe through his power. See, what kind of prophet is this? We don't have a category for this kind of prophet. Prophets just tell us about God. But here, our author is saying that this prophet is God. And you see how Jesus is superior to the prophets. He doesn't just tell us about God. He is God. And not only is he God as the great prophet, but our author actually hints at the other two offices of Christ here. He says in verse 3, After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, if it weren't enough that this prophet not just speaks about God, but is God, if that weren't enough for us, our author even heaps more information here. This prophet not only is God and not only tells us about God, but this prophet is a priest and this prophet is a king. This prophet makes purification for our sins. Prophets couldn't do that in the Old Testament. That was the job of the priests. And not only does this prophet make purification for sin, but this prophet sits at the right hand of the throne of God. This prophet is a king, ruling and defending us, conquering and restraining his and all of our enemies. Do you see how much greater Jesus the prophet is compared to all of the prophets that came before him? Those prophets were a great blessing to the people of Israel. They proclaimed God. They proclaimed the work of God. But Jesus is the greater prophet because he is God. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. That's your Jesus. Let's close as we end this morning. Lord Jesus, we rejoice this morning that you are the great prophet. Lord God, as we, as we ponder these few verses here of Hebrews, we see there is so much rich teaching here. Lord, we pray that you would work that teaching deep into our hearts and into our minds. Oh God, we rejoice that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and that we can trust it. We can trust the apostles whom you've sent. Oh God, we pray that as we continue to study this book, we would be awed and amazed at how great our Savior is, how much better he is than anything else. And Lord, we pray that we would learn love and to trust you all the more through this study. 
pray now that you'd prepare us for worship and to hear the preaching of your word. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.